You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 108 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Katie Norman-Grubbs. Hello, Victoria and Katie. Hi. Hi. Let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the program. Victoria, why don't you go first? Hi, everyone. As Ilea said, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I uh, live in Woodstock, Georgia, with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, and also our two cats. Uh, We are both in between jobs right now, so I am going through the humiliating, agonizing uh, job application process. Uh, But other than that, I'm really enjoying spending some time hanging out with my family uh, and babysitting my nieces, who are three and eight and the coolest kids in the world. That's awesome. I've enjoyed seeing your pictures of them. Uh, Katie, what about you? I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Sugarland, Texas with uh, my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four kids. Um, who are seven, four, three, and 14 months. Um, and we have been having a pretty fun summer. We did a big long road trip um, to see family and then have been kind of, now we're gearing up to start, my kids start school in about two weeks. So I got to, um, after payday, have to go buy all our school supplies and get ready to take them back to school. And my four-year-old is about to start full day pre-K um, at the elementary school, so he's going to get to ride the bus with his sister. So I think he's very excited about that. Oh, that's so fun. My name is Ilea Danner Grubbs. Um, I live in Trussville, Alabama, with my husband Brian and our two young children. Um, and uh, I have a degree in elementary education with an emphasis in Bible and French. I taught in a classroom for six years, but now I'm homeschooling, and we're getting ready to start that back in a couple of weeks too. Um, so now I'm cleaning out the basement and trying to turn it back into a schoolroom. That's my project right now. Um, but all right, well, we are going to talk today about um, Kate Chopin, the um, author and early feminist, pre, pre before that was a thing. She was an early feminist writer. Um, but we're going to talk specifically about um, her in light of kind of intersectional feminism. Uh, so I wanted to start by kind of getting us a a working definition of what intersectional feminist means. Uh, It's a core tenet of fourth wave feminism, according to most definitions. Um, And uh, it was coined by the uh, American professor, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, She's a legal studies scholar in her 1989 article, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. Um, now the concept, it, it, the concept already existed, but she was the first one to put a name on it um, in a published article. And her article centers primarily around black women's experience with the legal system. Um, and from that has come a, a broader, more kind of popular general definition um, that uh, 
it's the view that women experience oppression in various configurations and in varying degrees of intensity. Cultural patterns of oppression are not only interrelated, but are bound together and influenced by the intersectional systems of society. Examples of this include race, gender, class, ability, and ethnicity. And that's a quote from um, an article in The Telegraph that I will put a link to in the show notes. Um, so I know that we've talked several times on the show about working to broaden uh, our perspectives of feminism especially in the Truth's Table episode that we did a few years ago, which oh, I say we, I, I didn't do it, but I certainly enjoyed listening to it. And uh, so when I was reading through some of Kate Chopin's short stories recently, it struck me that this was a really good avenue to bring up some of this idea of intersectional feminism because there's such a diverse cross-section in her stories of women who are experiencing and resisting that oppression in various configurations and in varying degrees of intensity, like the article states. Um, and obviously, as a white woman, Kate Chopin is not going to be able to speak from the perspective of a woman of color personally. Um, and she has quite a large body of work, so we're not going to be able to go into all of it. But I thought that looking at just a couple of her stories would give us a jumping off point for some some of this discussion. Uh, so let's start with some background on Kate Chopin herself. Victoria, do you want to give us some information about her life? Sure. Uh, and this is a, a really brief high points um biography and as you said Leah um, she has written quite a lot so uh, I'll mention sort of big texts but uh, if you're interested in Chopin please um, listeners go look at more so she was born Kate O'Flaherty on February 8th 1850 in St. Louis Missouri Uh, her mother is French and her father is Irish so she um, being of, of those two extractions in the mid-19th century. She kind of understands um, prejudice in an interesting way, uh, though she is fairly high class. She's educated at the St. Louis Academy of the Sacred Heart. She remains really close to a number of the nuns who are her teachers there, as well as to her mother and her grandmother. You can see a lot of really female-centric communities in her work. You can tell that she was mentored by women. Tragically, her father dies in a really terrible railroad accident when she's about five years old. Um, She continues school through her teenage years and um, starts going to a series of these estate dances at really fancy houses in St. Louis uh, in high school. Um, When she's 18, she meets Oscar Chopin. Uh, about a year and a half later, when she's 20, they get married. Um, there's a, a lovely section of her journals where she talks about surprising a bunch of society ladies with their engagement because she's kept it mostly a secret. Uh, she seems to delight in that a lot. They go on a uh, fairly lavish tour of several U.S. cities and several cities in Europe for their honeymoon. Then they return home uh, and set up house in New Orleans. Oscar works as a cotton factor uh, there. For any of our non-Southern listeners, a factor is uh, essentially a broker who sells um, what the cotton farmers grow. Uh, This is smack in the middle of Reconstruction in the South, so it's a a really um, turbulent, messy time in terms of class and race. Uh, And There's a lot of um, rioting, fighting, lynching, terrible things. Uh, Oscar himself is a member of the infamous White League in Louisiana. They're a paramilitary organization that uh, riots against the state government in this incident called the Battle of Liberty Place. 
Um, it is called a battle by White League members and not by uh, official Louisiana government, um, who call it an insurrection. Uh, they don't like the government's reconstructionist policies, so they rebel. A lot of people are injured. Uh, this is probably the right place in the biography to say that Kate herself was um, sympathetic to the South and a supporter of the Confederate cause. Her brother also fought for the Confederacy. Um, this isn't very odd, though. It would have been common because she was high class uh, for her to have been uh, a Confederate supporter. So after they get married, Kate and Oscar have six children in eight years. They have five boys and a girl. He dies in 1882 from malaria, and she never remarries. She raises the children by herself, um, though a couple years after his death, she does move the entire family back to her hometown in St. Louis. Uh, while there, a uh, doctor friend of their family uh thinks that she's a really good writer and encourages her to pursue that. She publishes her first short story in 1889 and her first novel, At Fault, in 1890. Uh, much of her work centers around female protagonists and how these women deal with lots of different social conflicts, race, class, um, and a number of her works concern themselves with the conflict between um, public perception and private desire. She never considers herself aligned with the suffragist or feminist causes. She's much more concerned with uh, individual women's struggles and stories, not really that into aligning herself with systemic politics. If you've heard of her as a writer, you've probably heard of her because you know her 1899 novel, The Awakening, um, which is panned by critics mostly during her lifetime, uh, but gets rediscovered by second-wave feminists in the 60s and 70s. There are some male critics writing about Chopin's work uh, earlier than that in the 50s and 60s, but not a lot. Um, we really owe her popularity now to, uh, to the work of second-wave feminists uh, rediscovering her texts. The Awakening, if you're not familiar with it, is about this woman named Edna Pontellier, who's a wife and mother. She's pretty unhappy in her domestic circumstances. She falls in love with this other man while she's on vacation. Um, he, basically to save his class distinction, um, ends the affair and leaves. She is very upset um, and depressed about this and can never reconcile um, what her society expects of her with her desire to be free and independent and um, what everybody knows about the novel is that it ends with her drowning herself in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that's her most famous work. She also wrote over a hundred short stories. Um, those are anthologized a lot. Um, if like Katie and me, you have taught freshman composition. You have probably taught at least one Kate Chopin story. Um, the ones I've taught most frequently are The Storm, its sequel at the Cadian Ball, uh, Desiree's Baby, which we'll talk about today, and The Story of an Hour. Um, so, though she does not uh, become super recognized for her novel, her short stories get some acclaim during her lifetime. Uh, and she dies in 1904 at her home of a cerebral hemorrhage. And that's my short biography of Kate Chopin. Thank you so much. Um, since you mentioned it, uh, I know both of you have taught um, 
at least some of her stories or, or have some experience with kind of her, her or her works. Um, do y'all want to go ahead and share some, um, any experience you have relating to her and her work? Uh, my story is personal and not a teaching story. Um, so I'll let Katie go first. Um, I mostly have taught story of an hour, um, and put it in my online class that I built for HBU where I'm at now. Um, in some ways, Chopin in her short stories makes me think a bit of Poe in the sense that some of her short stories are extremely short, like a story story of an hour. Um, Desiree's Baby is fairly short, too. And um, kind of so that you get almost a, a snapshot effect, um, a kind of short, very short scene or um, and with a big effect. And a story of an hour is like that. Um, something shocking happens at the beginning of the story. And um, which and, you know, listeners, sorry, I'm going to give you some story of an hour spoilers, but the story has been around for, you know, over 100 years. So um, one sentence summary in a story of an hour, woman finds out that her husband has apparently died in a train wreck. Um, she goes upstairs, apparently distraught. Um, but once the door's locked behind her and she's alone, she realizes that she is actually feeling captivated by the freedom unfolding before her because she will now be unmarried. Um, and, you know, she has felt stifled um, in some ways by married life. And so she's actually kind of happy that her husband has died. Um, so then she finally gets her gets her emotions together, gets herself together. She's going to go back downstairs. When she gets downstairs, her husband actually walks in the door because, in fact, it was a mistake that he was reported dead. He didn't die. And she has a heart attack on the spot. And the uh, the people around her say she died of joy. Right. Um, but the interesting thing about teaching that story that always happens is nine times out of 10, my freshman students assume that the only reason she could be happy that her husband has died and now she's going to be alone is that he was abusive. Almost really? every, t yes. Almost every time they'll be like, well, clearly he must've been at very least emotionally abusive. And I'll always say, okay. But in the story, she takes pains to say he was a good husband. He was a nice man. He wasn't a, he wasn't a bad person. My students always thought that too, by the way, they, I the activity that I often did when I taught that story is to have them um, switch the POV and write um, the events from the husband's perspective. Oh, okay. In order to get in order to get past that, um, but I would have them stick to the events that are on the page. You know, talk about the train crash being reported. Talk about him going home, because they would always want to like flash super back and have him hitting her or something really easy like that. Um, but we don't get that information from the story. Exactly, and and that's one reason I love teaching that story is because I'm able to because I'm able to complicate for them things for them a little bit. And so then we have and I you know so then I point them back and say all we have is this text and what she says in this text is he's not a bad husband. So. What does that tell you then? So why, what could be other reasons besides an abusive husband that a woman might feel stifled? And the other thing that they would always end up having to confront when we had to have discussions about that, that I would try to get them to, to think about is that the way we do tend to do, at least in American culture right now, tends to be, we tend to think of marriage as about romantic love. And so, you know, we would always have conversations, the story of an hour of what are other reasons a woman in the 19th century would get married? maybe, you know, I mean, if you have not married someone for love, if she's married her husband for security or because the other option is to be a spinster lady or whatever, there are all kinds of reasons she might have married him. And if she's married him not for love, but, you know, for some of those other things and then gotten married and found, you know, the institution of marriage as it existed in the 19th century stifling, 
why would she not maybe feel a little bit of recovered freedom? Like, and so that's the other thing is it's trying to, the other thing that I think that's happening with them is I think they tend to want to see, um, her as kind of uncomplicatedly good. So he must've been really bad. Mm-hmm. And we always have to say, okay, but humans women, and women, women as humans are more complex than that. Right. And, and that's think, such a good point because all of Chopin's characters are complex. Like they're just, they're never, she never allows them to be simple. No, no. And I mean, that's the thing too, is, you know, if you read story of an hour, you know, it, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable reaction to read that story and go, I don't, I'm not totally okay with the fact that she's this excited that her good husband is dead. That's fine. Like, and that's what I'm trying to get them to see is that you can have a mixed reaction to this story. But the point is to help you try to think about the idea that um, there is something that could be stifling for some women, could be stifling and even in a, a perfectly nice marriage. Right. And we talk about that. So, and, and ideas of freedom and autonomy and things like that. So that's the one experience teaching I don't think I've taught any of the other ones actually um I read more for my comps um but I don't I don't remember a lot about that because it was comps um and uh so yeah I think that's the one my students have responded to the most but Victoria you said you had a a personal story tell us tell us about that because that sounds intriguing yes please Okay, uh, so this is not directly related to Kate Chopin's work, but it is related to people's reactions to her. Um, I I mentioned in my biography that she um, was a Confederate supporter and that she did not, in her lifetime, claim the label of feminist. And I think um, a lot of 21st century feminists, because we want to think that our, um, we want to think that our points of view are correct, um, that we're on the right side of history, one of my least favorite uh, phrases, because time is not linear and that's not how progress works. Uh, People, as you said, Katie, are more complex than that. Um, I I think a lot of feminists sometimes have trouble with with the complexity of of Chopin as a person, um, much like what you were talking about um, in her stories. And so I, I have a story that's kind of related to that. So I'm from the South originally. I grew up in Georgia. Uh, I was born in Savannah. My family has lived in the South a long time. Um, I know for a fact that one side of my family uh, way back owned slaves, and the other side of my family um, had a a number of Confederate soldiers in it. Uh, One of my, I don't know if it's five or six greats, but something like that, my five or six greats grandfather um, was a tower guard in Andersonville prison, and his job was to uh, shoot Union soldiers who tried to escape. So this wow. is something that, as a right, it's pretty heavy. Um, as a person who likes to think of herself as a progressive person, um, I've had to deal with those things, you know, um, in thinking about, like, what what is my responsibility for anti-racist causes as a white person? How complicit have I been in these systems? Um, because these things are in my family. That's something that I have tried to think about and grapple with. Um, and the, the one kind of relevant story that I have is when I was in high school, um, you know, you're trying to apply for a number of scholarships to make that experience easier. And my grandmother, um, who was really well-meaning, um, and I think just wanted to help me out, suggested that, uh, I apply 
for a scholarship through the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is like the Daughters of the American Revolution, but for the South, um, because I don't know where they are now. But at that point, uh, my grandmother had papers that proved that this uh, Confederate soldier that I mentioned earlier was in our family, and, you know, we could prove ties to him, and I could get this scholarship. And I said, in, you know, all of my 17-year-old zeal, uh, absolutely not. Uh, this is inappropriate. I think I got so mad at her that I called it blood money, which is just, like, completely disrespectful to her, and I should not have, you know, I shouldn't have been that angry about it. Um, though I am glad that I did not take that money and think I should not have. Um, I also think I should have maybe, uh, moderated my teenage zealousness a little bit in that moment. Um, Yeah, but I'm real impressed by that teenage zealousness. (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I didn't take the money. I think it would have been wrong to still. Um, but I also think I could have maybe been a little bit more respectful of my grandmother who was just trying to be nice to me in that moment. But you know, we're angry about a lot of stuff when we're 17. So it is what it is. Uh, yeah. So that's my, I, I am kind of sympathetic to Kate Chopin moment. Um, and I, I, get kind of frustrated with especially feminists who say like how could she have been a confederate supporter well because it was the 19th century and she was an upper class woman and like it would have been weirder if she wasn't so i i think um we need to kind of let that complexity exist even as we interrogate um her writing on race um which we're about to do now at least because the, the the complexity makes the I mean the the fact of who she was and where she came from makes her the kind of things that she's interrogating that much more impressive. If she was just you know if she was someone who had not come of that background and was kind of questioning in the fiction some of the same things, I don't I mean it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be as surprising it wouldn't be as um, as interesting and she wouldn't necessarily have the same knowledge base to talk about it if she hadn't been part of that world. Yeah, I agree. It is very interesting that who she is and who she, and what she wrote about are, you know, from the same origin. It, it is a very interesting combination. But like I said, you know, her writing is complex. She's complex. Um, she, she never lets things be simple. Um, so thank you for those stories. Those are all really amazing and very interesting. Um, so the, I picked two of her short stories, and they are very short, um, La Belle Zahed and Desiree's Baby. And I picked them because I thought that they gave – uh, an interesting kind of cross-section of race and socioeconomic class, um, and then, of course, the gender issue, um, all kind of t- together. Um, and there's there's so many more. I, you know, I encourage everybody to go read the whole anthology because there are so many more, but, but I picked these. So um, if we're just going to do a brief summary of each of them, you know, one edit, like one and then the other, and then kind of discuss them together, because a lot of, I think the discussion comes from kind of some comparing and contrasting between the two stories. Um, so I'm going to have, uh, Victoria, will you kind of give us a summary of La Belle Zahed, and then Katie, I'm going to let you um, do Desiree's Baby, and then we'll we'll talk about some of the themes and some of the, the ways that this intersectional feminism comes out in these stories. Sure. Uh, I am going to apologize for my French pronunciation, which is way worse than Leah's. So, uh, me too, friend. Don't worry. Bear, bear with me there. <laughs> no worries. Uh, well, and in, and in, uh, in y'all, y'all's 
defense, I don't speak Cajun French at all, so I'm probably butchering it as well. If if somebody spoke Cajun French, they probably are wincing at my um, Parisian French pronunciation. So it's all good. Okay, uh, so we start with um, Mana Lulu, who's an older female slave uh, to Madame Delisle. Um, and Mana Lulu tells us that one of her responsibilities is to uh, tell Madame Delisle essentially bedtime stories um, at the end of every day, but uh, she demands that the stories be true. So Mana Lulu tells the story of Zoraide, who was a light-skinned house slave whose mistress was also her godmother. They have this very close relationship, and her mistress tells her that she has to get married, quote, in a way that would do honor to her bringing up. So they talk a lot about um, what it's going to be like when she gets married one day. And her mistress wants her to marry the local doctor's uh, slave, but Zoraid is in love with another man who is a dark-skinned field slave. Um, a lot of colorism in this story, but I'm sure we'll get there later. She falls in love with him when she sees him dancing in the square, and when she tells her mistress that she's in love with uh, Mazor, the mistress gets very angry um, and forbids them to speak to each other. Um, you know, forbidden love... Uh, has the effect that forbidden love has and they sneak around and she gets pregnant and as a result he gets sold away um, when she gives birth her mistress tells her that her baby is dead um, but really her baby's just um, sent away to a plantation Zorid in response uh, goes essentially insane from grief she's so depressed um, that she adopts this bundle of rags and treats it like a baby. Um, her mistress is concerned to the point that she brings her child back and they say, hey, your baby's really not dead, um, but she's too far gone at that point. Um, she just keeps tending to this baby made of rags. They stop calling her La Belle Zoraid, Zoraid the Beautiful, and start calling her uh, Zoraid the Fool. Madame Delisle, at the end of the story, says, that's terrible, um, I would rather the baby had died. Um, and that's how both the narrative and the meta-narrative end. Okay, so um, Desiree's Baby um, is a pretty short story, um, and I'm going to do a fairly short um a fairly short summary. The truth is that this story could be really be summarized in about two sentences, but there are some nuances uh, to get through. So, um story kind of begins with Madame Valmonde, and she's driving over to see her daughter Desiree and Desiree's baby, like the title of the story. Um, and then she kind of flashes back to when um, they found Desiree, because Desiree was not born into that family. Um, she was found as a small child, um, kind of more of a toddler, um, because she can talk. Um, but the uh, Madame Valmonde's, I'm assuming her husband, she just calls him Monsieur. Um, found her lying asleep, uh, De found Desiree lying asleep in the shadow of a big stone pillar outside their plantation. She was just there. And she was calling for Dada. And that's all they, uh, that's all they knew. Um, the going theory is that she was left by a party of Texans who came by and co covered wagons. I um, love the shade that the Texans thrown in there. <laughs> those Texans, they don't even care. I they know, right? They don't care about their babies. Um, and basically, Madame Valmonde, uh, adopts Desiree as her own because um, she had not been able to have children. 
and she's um, beloved on the plantation um, and she grows up to be beautiful and gentle and sincere and um, the idol of Valmonde, which is something I want to talk about later because that language is interesting. Um, and so then um, when she's 18, she falls in love with this guy, Armand Aubigny from a different plantation. Um, he, well, it, technically it says he fell in love with her. We're kind of left to assume that she also loves him because she's devastated when the story ends badly, um, when the relationship ends badly, but he falls in love with her at first sight. And the narrator says that that's the way all the Aubignys fall in love um, is in one go, just all, all at one time. Um, and so they, uh, his dad is worried because they don't know anything about where she's from, but Armand doesn't care. And so, um, he buys her an expensive kind of trousseau, um, and they get married and then she has a baby. And, um, when her mother visits, she notices something strange or she says, she's shocked and says, this is not the baby. And Desiree, the mother just says, I know, look how much she's grown up. And her mother's very, uh, is very put off and is thinking this child looks very different. What's happening right now? Um, and, uh, they kind of, the story kind of goes forward of, you know, Desiree's talking about, oh, my husband's so proud. It's a little boy and he's been so kind and so much nicer to our slaves since I had the baby. And I'm, and, you know, and true kind of melodramatic style says, I'm so happy it frightens me, which is, why do they always say that? Um. And uh, because before her son had been born, Armand had been very strict and exacting. We're not really sure why, because the story tells us that his father had been a lazy, indulgent, or not lazy, an indulgent and easygoing master. Um, but uh, um, Desiree realizes that people are, are kind of staring at the baby. Um, random neighbors come to visit who are from kind of far away, and they can't really tell exactly why they're there. They're like cagey about why they've come over. Um, and her husband starts acting cold, distant, won't talk to her, won't look at the baby. Um, finally she is kind of staring at the baby and looking at the little boy who is, uh, is fanning him, who we're told is one of LaBanche, one of the slaves, it's her son. Um, and she realizes they look alike and she goes and talks to her husband and she says, what does this mean? What my baby looks like? And he says, it means that the child is not white and that you are not white. And this is why he's gone completely cold to, to her. And she says, this is, no, this isn't true. I, I'm white. You know, look at my hair. My, my hair is brown and my eyes are gray and um, my skin is fair. And he basically just stays cold, cruel. And um, so she writes to her mother and says, they tell me I'm not white. And, you know, this is not true. I'm so, I'm so unhappy. Um, I must die. And her mom says, well, come back home to Valmonde. Come back to me. I love you. Bring your child. Um, and she asked her husband if she should go and he says, yes, I want you to go. Um, but instead of going to her mother's house, instead, she just walks out into the bayou, um, with the baby. Um, she walks out through the, you know, the fields, um, kind of bare, uh, I'm sorry, she's wearing thin slippers and a thin white garment and just walks out into the bayou and no one ever sees her again. Um, so it's, it's very, very sad. And then a few weeks later, this is where the story takes the turn, right? Um, a few weeks later, they're um, at uh, Labry, which is uh, Armand's house. Um, he's burning all of her stuff. So he's burning the cradle for the baby, all of her pretty dresses, all the different stuff. Lastly, he throws in her letters um, from her. And he had found the remnant of a letter in the back of the drawer where the other letters were. But he realizes it's not a letter from Desiree. It's an old letter from his mother to his father. And when he reads it, he finds out that, in fact, his own mother 
was black. Um, and so it seems that this is why their baby looks different. Um, and that's the end of the story. We don't know how he reacts to this information, but the story just stops. And that that's one of the times it makes me think of Poe, where you have this huge kind of thing reveal, and then it just the story just ends. So it's very um, dramatic, very kind of um, a little gothic. Um, the way, and I didn't say this before, but the way that the way that Armand's plantation is described, it sounds kind of creepy. It's got like low hanging dark eaves, and there's trees all around it, really close. Um, and Madame Valmonde always says that she feels creeped out when she goes there. Um, even the little baby lying in the shadow of the great stone pillar, it, it just feels kind of gothic, which, you know, I mean, Southern Gothic is a thing. Um, and we don't necessarily think of, um, think of Kate Chopin when we think about stuff like that, but, um, it's an interesting story and a very sad story. Um, so I'll be interested to see what you guys have to say about it when we discuss it in a minute. Yeah. Thank you guys both for that. That's great. Um, so I just wanted just to kind of open it up to talk about what we see in these stories um, from a feminist perspective and then, you know, going into you know, a general feminist perspective and then specifically looking at intersectional feminism. How does, um, you know, how does it not just show the plight of women, but specifically the plight of women of different races, of different socioeconomic status, of different, um, you know, th that kind of thing. So, um I think, uh, Victoria, you were the one that brought up the, the kind of um, uh, complex classifications of, of the racial classifications. And um, that's definitely something I want to talk about, about um, the antebellum uh, kind of subgenres of race that they had to, to kind of, you know, parse everybody out into their particular station. Um, but first, let's just start with kind of a broad feminist theory approach. Um, do you guys see, you know, ways that these stories challenge the patriarchal order um, or ways that they at least, you know, observe different things? I mean, obviously these women are in distress, but but anything stand out to you guys that you wanted to bring up to start off with? I don't necessarily know that there's a lot happening with a rigid patriarchy, particularly in um, particularly in Desiree's Baby, uh, though um, there is a moment in the story when. Um, near the end of the story when he is um, he's thinking, uh, Armand is thinking to himself that um, she's deprived him of his um, It's okay, I found it. It says he, moreover, he no longer loved her because of the unconscious injury she had brought upon his home and his name. So, you know, even though she had no idea, you know, because he thinks it's her fault, even though he, it, it's clear that this is not something that she knew if it, it is true about herself, she didn't know it. Um, it doesn't matter because for him, despite the fact that we're treated to this description of his, his romantic love, that he fell headlong in romantic love with her, that still ultimately what matters most to him is kind of his, I guess, patriarchal role over the plantation, his name, his home. He's thinking of it all as his, not theirs. Um, so that is one place where it does come into play, at least in Desiree's Baby, that I noticed. And at, at the very beginning, like that idea of the name is so important because at the very beginning they say yeah. she has, you know, she's she's a foundling. She doesn't have, you know, people. And he says, well, what does that matter when I can give her one of the oldest and proudest names in Louisiana? You know, so yeah. he's already kind of taken on, you know, we're not going to be sharing anything. She's taking my name. I am providing this for her. And then she turns around and, you know, in his eyes betrays it. Um which is interesting because there is a lot of discussion in the scholarly articles about whether or not he already knew 
there are entire uh, you know lines of of writing and and discussion in which um, there there are many people who feel like he knew all along that 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 piece of the letter was not a late discovery that he knew and he is blaming her to preserve his name not because he is mistakenly blaming her um well the the idea of the tragic mulatto is incredibly common um in melodramatic literature of this period so i i think that people who make that argument are are not making it out of nowhere um do do i need to say what a mulatto is um yeah go for it because they do that that does come up a couple of times yeah yeah um so the tragic mulatto is a trope um, that's really, really popular in the 19th century. Um, a mulatto um, is also called a, a high yellow uh, person. It's a person of mixed race um, who in some cases can pass for white. Um, and when the tragic mulatto is revealed to be a person of color um, in the literature of the period, often um, this reveal happens through a discovered um, letter or or book. Um, so there, there's a tie-in there, um, and I think uh, it's easy for him to pin this on her because um, Leah, as you mentioned, she is a foundling. Um, another trope, um, another really common trope of melodrama of the period, uh, the foundling child. Um, he can because his name is well known and, and hers is is taken upon her, um, it's really easy for him, if he already knows and those critics are right, to, to do that bait and switch. Um, and the, the tragic mulatto is tragic because she, usually she, um, though sometimes tragic mulattoes are male, uh, she um, is beautiful despite being of color. Um, is, is sort of the, the way the, the trope goes. Um, it's very of its time. Um, it's often thought racist now, um, but it is a, a very common literary trope of the period. Yeah. It's hard to even discuss it because it's all very cringeworthy and, you know, very, it's very easy to recognize it now as, you know, racism and trying to um, kind of subordinate different people and, and put them in classes. Um, but at the time, these would have been distinctions that, and they are distinctions that are used in the, the text. Um, in both stories, we get um, some of these distinctions between, um, they, they say things like the, the quadroon, the, the child that's um, probably like a fourth white or, or or a fourth black or different things like that. Like they make a lot of those kind of what, would have Would have been a, a fourth black fourth ask, um, uh, if, if they were a yeah. quadroon. Can I ask yeah. you a question about, can, I want to ask you guys a question and I didn't say this when I summarized it cause I've never been sure. Do we, do we think that the, that, um, that some of these children on the plantation are supposed to be Armand's children? Yeah. Some of these oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's very Oh, there's, there's, there's definitely rape which, underneath this. Yeah. Which makes this. it way yeah. worse, because, like, when he said, she says, oh, the baby cries so loud that he heard, he yes. heard the baby crying down at LeBlanche's cabin. Yes. Well, okay, like, why Question is Question mark, yeah. Right? And, yes. but the idea that he's going to be, that he's going to be, I mean, even, even if the twist at the end, even if you take it at face value, that he didn't know that he wasn't white, the fact that he would be okay with having illegitimate children who are mixed race but be furious that his like heir looks mixed race it says all you need to know I feel like about the period and about um this particular kind of context I don't know um that's something that I, I didn't notice when I was younger and I first read the story and then noticed when I got older and was like man that's been hiding that's been in plain sight the whole time 
Yeah, it's, it's all about appearances. Yes, for sure. And interesting to note that whether or not he knew all along, he definitely knows by the time he's burning the corvée. He, he, it says, because it says he read the letter um, in the second to last paragraph, the, the letter from his mom to his dad. So even, yeah. you know, even if he didn't know the whole time when he's clearing out her letters, he does find that and he does know. And yet he's burning her things anyway. You know, he's going through with this, you know, purging of her memory, um, you know, even though he at this point at least does realize that it's him and not her. So in that case, it could be because she's died. I mean, you know, she wandered true, out of the yeah. um, I, true. you know, and it just also really quick before we move on, apropos, you, I had totally forgotten this story till you were talking about um, Victoria talking about the idea of passing um, and, you know, looking like one race um, while having mixed race. Um, when David, um, David's grandma, one of David's grandmas, Marilyn um, was always super, super, super tan. Um, even when she was a child. And one time when she was a little kid, her grandma, or sorry, yeah, her mom or grandma took her on the bus and they tried to send her and her grandma to the back of the bus because they mm. thought that she was, they thought that she was mixed or, wow. you know, I mean, and so, and that would have been, gosh, the thirties maybe, but just, just as a way of illustrating how long, right? Like how long kind of, um, certain attitudes and different things. And I, I, and, and I, you know, I don't remember, I don't know how that story ended if they were made to go, because what David said would always say the end of that story was that, that grandma got was livid and was giving hell to the bus driver. Um, but you know, that that would be that people were still, or, you know, or, and for, for such a long time, we're still looking and thinking, what percentage are you, what's going on? Are you mixed race? Like, and, and all oh, yeah. I mean, that, the paper bag test was happening through the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the literal paper bag test. So sure. I can believe that. Oh man. I mean, yeah. Um, and I was thinking about that just now when, um, when we were talking through this. Another thing that you mentioned, I think it was you, Katie, that, about whether or not she actually falls in love with Armand, if she has any kind of agency in this story. Um, Yeah, I don't think it matters whether she falls in love with him or not. I think what matters is that he falls in love with her. Yeah, and 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 at no point do we see that she has anything but, like, dependence on him. Like, her happiness is dependent on his happiness, and interestingly, specifically dependent on his, like, kind treatment of the slave. She, like, makes a point to say that that's when she says, I'm so happy it frightens me because of his kind treatment, which is really interesting. But, but in general, like at no point do we see that she loves him in any kind of like independent way. It's all about, you know, if he smiles, her life is great. If he frowns, she loves him and fears. You know what I mean? There, there's, there's just not a lot of this marriage of equals that we see in this, this story. It's much more of a, you know, she's a foundling again. He has taken her into his care, you know, and, and she's at his mercy. She's at his, you know, disposal or whatever. Um, but you I think know, that... Well, look at, look at her name, right? Yes. Desiree means the desired one. Yes. So her, her worth is tied directly to his um his feeling toward her just as the mood of the plantation is tied to whether he treats the slaves nicely or not which seems to be just based on his emotions and not based on anything tethered to reality you know and it's um that's worth talking about too because the the ending of the story has always frustrated me because when she's just takes the baby and just walks out um you know obviously to her death um, because her, because her mother at least has said, you know, that she's willing to give her a place of safety. On the other hand, 
as you guys were saying, if this is the if this is kind of how she's been functioning in relationship to him, if she's been kind of just her whole world is encompassed in what is he feeling like right now with regard mm-hmm. to me, then it makes a little bit more sense that she doesn't have the wherewithal in that moment to pick up the shreds of herself and say, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to try to start again. Or you know, with the baby, like just his rejection, that's all that matters to her. And that it makes it understandable if still, you know, perhaps a little bit frustrating. Um, okay. So let's talk about the, the racial and social hierarchy. I wanted to bring up the, um, the emphasis on the patois in La Belle the, um, the other story. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on this Creole dialect that she ref- refers to as the Creole patois. Um, and, and it's interesting because the common scholarly opinion of the day was that that was um, offensive, that that language, that it was called a barbaric jargon. It was unsophisticated. Um, and they, they joked about it being a gumbo, like the food that they ate there. Um, but Chopin, a few other contemporaries, gave it this place of honor and importance um, in their writing. And even the fact that she wrote it out is important because it's mostly a verbal language. And she took time to carefully um, write it in a way that made it readable and you know understandable when there wasn't really a standardized uh, system of writing for, for this language. Um, and just to kind of give an, a little overview, because linguistics and language is one of my hobbies, um, a patois, it's a non-standard form of speech, um, such as a Creole, not capital C Creole, like the kind that's specifically related to Louisiana, but a Creole in general. Um, and it develops from when uh, languages mix at a relatively sudden point in time. Usually it's a colonization or the introduction of slaves who don't speak the language. And uh, it often develops from from a pigeon which is just kind of a very um, uh, basic, simple vocabulary of the dominant language with a simplified grammar from the minority language so that two cultures can communicate, usually business. Um, but but a, a patois or a creole is a, a more fully developed form of that, and it's more standardized. So there are grammatical rules that you can point down that are you know standard. Um, the term patois is actually generally a negative connotation socially um, because it's usually by definition, in contrast to what would be called by linguists the dominant prestige language of the society. So um, there's a there's a quote from a famous French politician, something to the effect of patois is what you call the people the, the language of the people who lost lost the war, lost the the struggle or whatever. Um, in these stories, we see Chopin treat the Creole patois with fondness, with respect. Um, she says at the beginning of La Belle Soirée that um, it's music and charm no English words can convey. That was shocking at the time. That was very unusual. Um, and it's so interesting to me because it's a meeting place between two cultures. Um, and, and, and also, it was the cradle language for both the upper class white children and the black children of the Creole sections of Louisiana because the children learned it um, from birth to communicate to their nannies. Um, they were taught it from an early age. Um, so it's a complex combination of linguistic and social elements. And I think it's a really interesting and beautiful metaphor for the complexities that we see in these women's lives um, from different races as they work to both integrate and hold separate uh, these cultures. Uh, Chopin challenges the this you know simple black and white characteristic, and um, she focuses on how this language binds them together. And I think it's really interesting that she emphasizes, emphasizes that. And, and not only that, but um, offers it untranslated in the texts of the stories, yes. which is incredibly powerful yes. because um, because if you don't speak French or Creole, um, 
that language is there, you know, forcing you to reckon with what you don't understand. And as a person who, you know, usually is in a fairly privileged social position, I think that's a powerful thing. Um, does anybody else have anything they wanted to add about, uh, I mean, I know we could talk about this for literally just, you know, an entire college semester, but but does anybody have anything else that they wanted to talk about, about the, the racial and social hierarchy and how these st- stories kind of bring that out or deal with it in different ways? I, I mentioned colorism um, in, in my biography, and I, I want to talk about colorism um, in La Belle's Red for a second, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So we are told that Zorid is beautiful. It's in her name, La Belle, um, and the name of the story. And we're told that she's beautiful in the same sentence that we're told that her skin is cafe au lait. Uh, so she's, um, she is a light skinned black person and, uh, the, she's, her mistress wants her to marry a man, um, who is also light skinned and has white hair. Uh, so he's, um, he's older and he's closer to passing as a white person. The man that she falls in love with is um, a field slave and very dark-skinned. Those are, of course, two related conditions uh, because field slaves often became field slaves because they were naturally darker and then got darker still because they were out in the sun more, um, which encouraged uh, overseers and masters to separate them from the house slaves because um, darker color was considered lower socially and worse. Um, Sometimes evil, you would also get sort of preachers of the period saying that uh, the color of the outside reflected the soul on the inside and that darker slaves were more sinful than lighter ones. So all of that is at play here. this idea that um, her her desires, the feelings she has for the people that she either is in love with or is not in love with, are all really tied up in um, plantation politics of race. And I think that's particularly interesting when you consider the meta narrative construction of a story, because you have a slave telling a mistress a story about a slave whose mistress deceives her and how horribly wrong everything goes so that's really powerful right that's like a pretty huge social transgression um that she seems to get away with because it's buried in this meta narrative uh so i I think it's really interesting that she if you analyze the meta narrative is making a really strong political statement about color and and racism yeah that's a great point did you have anything to add? Yeah. Um, well, just um, the idea that a person in La Belle Zorade that that I kind of and and piggybacking off of what Toria said because she pretty much said it all. But um, just the idea that that in, in the guise of of care, sort of a twisted kind of care, comes you know um, her uh, La Belle Zorade's mis her mistress's manipulation, right. Or, um, the things that she does, you know, she says are, are, are for the good, right. Of, of Zoraid. Um, and, but, but that, but that's purely in her eyes, a kind of a social good, not an emotional good. Right. Um, and I, that I think is particularly poisonous. Um, 
I mean, of course it's a social good. She is not an individual. She's property. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. And I, and I didn't think about that way, but you're right, Victoria, because if she can, if she can arrange a good, uh, quote, a good marriage for Zaray, then that makes her look good. Her, the mistress also look good. Whereas, yeah, yeah, that's true. She sets her up with the doctor's house slave and not the doctor's field slave because yeah, it's a, it's a, um, a vertical move the the how the field slave is a lateral move at best i mean that's a it's a downward move really and did you and we see the same thing with desiree too like the person who's supposed to protect her is the person who ends up you know causing her destruction um did y'all see in la belle did you notice i missed this like the first several times that i read this that that she gives zoret a slave she has her own quote negro slave that she is given as this because she's this kind of pet of Madame. I know what you're talking about. I'm trying to find it again now, but yes, I do remember that. That um I gotta find it now. She had her own little black servant to wait upon her. That's what it says. It's when she's talking about mm-hmm. how she's been brought up at her mistress's side and she doesn't yeah. have to do anything rougher than sew like a seam and stuff. Yeah. Um so yeah. she's just kind of playing like this is her daughter and and she just kind of like turns her into a pet. And I think it's really interesting that Zaraid resists that. You know, even though that, you know, she's she's offering her comfort and everything, but in, in her own way, Zoraid is able to kind of push back from that and and insert her will and her agency uh, in a way that even Desiree doesn't really find a way to do. I think that's really interesting. If we had more time, I'd really like to talk about um, childless women, the, the fact that um, both the mistress in the meta narrative and um Desiree's adopted mother are both women who sort of adopt girl children in perilous social positions because they don't have their own children. Oh and yeah. What and and what that means in terms of female autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think we have time to do that. And the, but it is the, it is very interesting. Yeah, the broader topic of motherhood in general and how Chopin deals with that is is just fascinating in all of its different aspects that she that she looks at. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we we could do a whole class on this. Um let's go ahead and skip down to to why in the big picture is is looking at all of this important. I mean, this was written over a hundred years ago. Um what what can we take away with the, from this? Why why do we need to be discussing Chopin at all and specifically looking at this through a lens of intersectional feminism what why why do we need to do that I I think uh, it's important to mention again something that I mentioned before which is um, Chopin was in a lot of ways panned as a writer while she was alive and became a more important addition to the canon after her voice was discovered by feminist scholars who were looking to elevate other women's voices. Uh, so I think um, it's important to think about that difference in reception. Um, why might she not have been respected as much while she was alive? And what about the complexity of her writing, um, which we've mentioned, this sort of intersectional nature. She explores race and class and autonomy uh, and femininity differentiated by race and class what about that might have been interesting to women um, scholars in the second wave who were looking for things they hadn't seen before Um, I I think all of that is is why it's important to a certain degree yeah do you know I did not know until I was reading her biography for preparing for this podcast I did not realize that her novel after the awakening was canceled 
because of the reception that the awakening received that she she was in the works to do another one and they canceled it on her i thought that was interesting katie what about you I think probably one of the most important things to pull from this is actually what I mentioned when I talked back at the beginning about teaching my students, but the idea of reading reading Chopin as a way to illuminate a different time and a different context. And because of the way that illuminating that specific context complicates, complicates our ideas about that time, but it also complicates our own context, like our own in our time because everything that is happening now is based on the past. And so, um, it's a, it's a way to help, um, to think differently about history, to look at parts of history that we are, might not be familiar with. Um, and to, you know, and also to think about, um, the struggles of different kinds of women, um, not just women like, you know, not just, like a woman like me, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to read Desiree's baby and, you know, go, oh, I felt exactly like this <laughs> because, you know, it's a totally different context. It's a different situation. These are issues that I have never and will never have to face in my life in terms of um, racial politics and, and social, you know, stigma. Um, so all of that, I think, is a really, a really great reason to read Chopin. And all, honestly, just to put my English teacher hat on for a second, too, um, reading her is fantastic because she the way she crafted her stories is so skilled, so skillful. And um, the way that she packed so much, particularly into the short stories, um, I think is just uh, incredible. And, um, and it's a way to, at least for my students, for them to see that there were women writing then. There were skilled women writers um, writing incredible things then, whether or not that got any attention at the time, any popularity. Um, and so that's, a, you know, yet another reason to be grateful, like Victoria talked about, that um, she was rediscovered later. So I think th those are those are kind of my thoughts about why it why it matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just in general, like the duty of art and specifically in this case, liter literature is to you know, to challenge us, to challenge our assumptions, to, to challenge us to see other perspectives, to cultivate compassion. Like those are, those are important components in establishing not just, you know, feminism, but, but establishing humanity, you know, our humanity in relation to other people. And that's, that's one of the, the things that art does is that it, it connects us and it, it helps us to see beyond ourselves. And I think both personally and as a community, it's important that, that we look at this um, from an intersectional feminist perspective uh, so that we can continue this discussion, you know, continue these kind of conversations. And uh, obviously we're not going to get it right every time I'm speaking from a position of, you know, a white woman. So I don't have the same perspectives as somebody else who might read this um, from a different perspective. But that's the point is that, that we can come together and, and this gives us a jumping off place to discuss. I think that's great. Uh, let's move to passing on. Katie, do you have anything to recommend for us? Yes, I do. Um, so in thinking about intersexual feminism and thinking about different, um, different, uh, different kind of ideas working together in systems of oppression. Um, what I want to recommend tonight is, um, a story called Wretched Tatif, which was Toni Morrison's only published short story. It's a story that I, I teach to my students, but, um, the reason I'm recommending it tonight is because it is a story that turns on, um, racial and class signifiers, um, but does not give an answer. And um, it, it's a fairly long first short story. It was first published in 1983 um, in an anthology. Um, and it's, 
it's a wonderful read because when my students read the story, um, basically the story goes through um, the uh, kind of um, repeated interactions of two girls, um, Twilight and Roberta, over time. They meet in an orphanage, then they meet later a couple of other times throughout their lives. Um, they have various interactions. Um, they both have various signifiers of class. Um, and when um, asked, when I asked my students, because um, uh, Morrison never tells you who's racist, who's. Um, one of them is white, one is black. Morrison doesn't tell you which is which. When I ask my students which one is white and which one is black, it's like an even split. They never agree. Um, Interesting. It's, it's fascinating. And and when you ask them why um, and what signifies which race, the answers are so interesting. I had um, a literal physical fight breakout while teaching that story. What? Oh. Um, you know what? Yeah. I, I, it's a it's a fantastic it's story. It's a fantastic story. But I can see that. It's difficult to teach. Yeah, because if you say, "Well, why do you think she's white?" or "Why do you think she's black?" and somebody in class is like, "Well, obviously it's because," and then they throw in something that doesn't, you know, from the story that doesn't sound particularly flattering. I could see where that could be really sensitive. Um, I've never taught it on campus, which probably has let me off easy. I teach it online, so I see my students what they've written down about it, and so they've had time to think it through. Um, and kind of give a more measured response. They can <laughs> um, filter a little bit. They can filter a little bit. Um, but it's really interesting. It, it's it's incredibly fascinating. So if you've never read it before, listeners, read it. It's again, it's called Retchetatif and by Toni Morrison, and it's fantastic and fully available online too. So it's easy to find. That's great. Thank you, uh, Victoria. What about you? I am recommending a webzine. Uh, that is edited by a friend of mine from graduate school called Beyond the Magnolias. Uh, it's an, the tagline is, a magazine that profiles remarkable Southern women of past and present. Um, my friend Cameron is the editor, and it is a series of stories that works to uh, kind of expand the trope of the steel magnolia, the strong Southern woman, and uh, the profiles are, as the tagline said, of historical women and present women. Um, I had the pleasure of writing a profile about my great-grandmother uh, for the zine a few years ago. So um, lo lots of different women there, those you've heard of and those you haven't. Um, it's a really interesting uh, magazine because it does a lot of the work that we were talking about Chopin doing on this episode. It kind of thinks about femininity in complex ways because of race and class and other things that intersect with womanhood. Um, so I would recommend you guys checking that out. It's uh, beyondthemagnolias.com. That's great. I can't wait to check that out. Um, and I'm going to recommend uh, Chimananda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminist. It's available online, and I'll put a link um, in the show notes. And uh, I, it, in general, is a great introduction to modern feminism um, if you're, you know, if, if you have somebody that you want to send it to, I, I've thought of several people that I think would, would benefit from looking at it just to kind of get an idea of, you know, the, the idea that what is feminism today. Um, but I recommended it specifically for this episode because she is Nigerian and she speaks from a Nigerian feminist perspective. And so she uh, references uh, different places in Nigeria and uh, some different even uh, colloquial phrases and it's in English but it um, is 
very much centered around her hometown in Nigeria and her experiences there. And I think, like we were talking about, it's important to see other perspectives and to kind of get outside of um, our you know narrow view sometimes of what feminism means to me and look at what it means to us as a community of women around the world. Um, and that can be very different in different situations. So uh, it's worth looking at. And also, uh, katechopin.org is the kind of official uh, hub for uh, the, the Kate Chopin um, Society, and it has wonderful information if you're looking for it on um, where oh, it has a lot of the short stories there uh, on the site. It has links to where you can find the rest of them. It has lots of scholarly articles, recommendations for books. Uh, so if you're interested in these and other stories, I highly recommend you check that out. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you want to just drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook or check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Phil- Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria and Katie, I'm Ilea Daner-Grubbs. Tune in on August 23rd when our sister show, Complementarianish, will offer a defense of Martha in Luke 10. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.